This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Hello, my name is Damien Copeland and I'm a member of the University of Queensland Law and the Future of War team. We investigate the way in which law constrains, enables or ignores technological change in the context of national and global security. Today, our topic is AI governance frameworks in the military, and we're very fortunate to be joined by Professor Simon Chesterman. Professor Chesterman is the Dean of the National University of Singapore Law School, a Senior Director for AI Governance at AI Singapore, and the author of the recently released book, Weave the Robots, Regulating Artificial Intelligence and the Limits of War. Professor Chesterman, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. In your book, We the Robots, you reflect on the proliferation in recent years of AI governance frameworks by nations, by organisations and by companies. What do you think are the drivers for this proliferation of governance frameworks? Yeah, thanks, Damien. I mean, I think one of the fascinating aspects of discussion of regulating robots, artificial intelligence through most of the 20th century was the assumption that what we needed was new rules. And I think this uh, is understandable, but it misconceives the problem as both too hard and too easy. Um, too hard in that there's this assumption that we need to rewrite everything to deal with these new technologies, uh, when in fact much of my argument really is uh, that most law can cover most aspects of artificial intelligence most of the time. At the same time, the idea that you would draft new rules misconceives the problem as being too easy because uh, the devil really is in the details in terms of how you apply the law. Uh, and so that's what I've tried to do uh, in the book. In terms of the, the reason for what, what happened uh, over the last sort of dozen or so years, I think we can actually trace it back further to Isaac Asimov. Uh, who I think was a great science fiction author, uh, and I assume many of the listeners to this podcast will be familiar with his work, in particular, The Three Laws of Robotics. Uh, and it's kind of shocking that since he wrote that in 1942, we didn't really get much further until the 2010s. And if you do read his work, uh, you discover pretty quickly that he was a much better science fiction author than legislator, because the rules didn't work. Much of his literature really is about the, the challenge of applying those laws. Nonetheless, we had this sort of idea, in particular in the 2010s, uh, that we needed new rules. And as you say, there was a proliferation of guidelines, frameworks, principles, uh, and it really took off around the period 2016 to 2018. Uh, and as I argue, I think there are two main driving factors there. One is uh, we did see real advances in AI technology through the 2010s, machine learning, uh, the realization that this technology really could transform economies. Uh, but the other thing we saw in 2016 to 2018 was the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Uh, and I think that led many individuals, governments, corporations to realize that the risks associated with this new technology uh, weren't just the kind of Terminator style apocalypse of, uh, of robot takeover, or that you would have identity theft or uh, weird recommendations in your Amazon cart, uh, but that it could really, it really could shape world history potentially affecting even an election uh, in the United States 
possibly linked with the rise of Donald Trump. And, uh, and so the consequences are much more serious. Uh, and so I think there really was a realization that you needed some kind of governance uh, in this area to deal with these new technologies. Your point that there's sufficient law and, and properly applied the law can cover most of the challenges or many of the challenges raised by uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, this seems to be reflected in in some of the national approaches which which favour a soft or, or a voluntary governance scheme based on principles. For example, uh, Australia's 2019 uh, AI ethics uh, principle certainly takes this approach. Um, why do you think that nations have taken this approach? Do you think it's a preliminary step in a broader strategy that moves towards a, a regulatory scheme, or do you think there's other reasons behind this? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting that most states, I think, are wary of over-regulating new technology. And that's, sometimes it's due to lobbying by technology companies. I mean, turkeys don't vote for Christmas, uh, and technology companies don't want to be regulated. Certainly, they don't want to be over-regulated. I mean, Bill Gates in the early 2000s, I think, famously said uh, that Microsoft didn't even have an office in Washington, D.C., or the only thing he wanted from government was to be left alone. But uh, so there are some sort of lobbying type reasons. I think there are legitimate concerns about overregulation if you're going to drive innovation elsewhere. Uh, and there are some examples of that. So again, early 2000s, the United States uh, imposed a moratorium on stem cell research, uh, which drove that research elsewhere, including places like Singapore. But the problem is if you wait too long, if you don't regulate, uh, then the costs of regulating go up. Uh, and this is what's sometimes called the Collingridge Dilemma named after David Collingridge, whose book, uh, The Social Control of Technology in 1980, highlighted this challenge for regulators that in an early stage of innovation, um, you, you can constrain it, you can contain harms, you can uh, impose regulation in a way that will stick. The problem is you don't know exactly what you're doing and you don't know the costs. The longer you wait, the clearer the things you should be regulating might become, but also there are so many sunk costs and a degree of path determinacy that the costs of regulating go up. So there's a little thought experiment you can do. I mean, go back to 2004, for example, when Facebook was launched, you could have easily imposed rules on social media because Facebook was a, was a startup, uh, very little political power, handful of users, uh, but, uh, but you don't know, you wouldn't have known the kind of things that you were trying to do. Jump forward to 2022 uh, and around the world, we're struggling with the question of how you regulate social media, all these things that would have been inconceivable in 2004, like fake news, uh, the, the, the Cambridge Analytica type scandal that I highlighted earlier. Uh, the costs of regulation have gone up, uh, even though it's far clearer that we need to regulate in some way. Uh, and so we're seeing a bit of experimentation around the world. There's also different appetites in different jurisdictions. Um, so the United States, I think, is probably more wary of constraining the market. Uh, the Europeans are clearly much more willing to impose hard regulation in support of uh, rights of individuals, even if there is a cost. Jurisdictions like Singapore, I mean, when we adopted data protection laws a decade ago, it was explicitly in the middle. Uh, and so in the second reading speech, the minister introduced this legislation saying it was explicitly intended to balance the rights of individuals against the legitimate needs of business. Uh, so around the world, I think different countries are trying different approaches. Uh, and uh, that experimentation is healthy, uh, except that one of the challenges of this new technology is it's very hard to contain to one jurisdiction. Uh, and so one fear that some Europeans even are expressing is that their 
pretty tough approach to regulation might just mean that Europe won't be a centre of innovation. And some Europeans are quite happy to accept that if it means that rights are being protected. But yeah, each jurisdiction will choose its own path. So it's interesting uh, that there seems to be a lot of parallel work and, and efforts being made by, by different countries, different jurisdictions. Do you think there's, uh, or, or do you see common elements in the governance frameworks that are being developed in terms of the principles that they apply? Um, and is there overlap, uh, not just between uh, the national frameworks, but perhaps those that are created by organisations such as OECD and, and companies, uh, uh, Google, for example? Yeah, I mean, I, I used to work at the United Nations where there was a kind of uh, a cliche that no wheel shall go unreinvented. Uh, <laughs> and I think there is a, uh, a lot of overlap. And, and in some ways that's, that's understandable and maybe it's positive. Um, so we are sort of moving towards uh, a consensus, I think, on at least some of the ground rules. We're actually doing some work here at AI Singapore trying to look at variation, in particular regional Variation. So, are there sort of different approaches in some Asian states? Uh, China has been a really interesting area of regulation recently. Uh, I mean, back in 2017, I think their national strategy essentially said they would they wouldn't start even thinking about regulation until 2025 uh, because they wanted to develop that sector. Uh, and China, in the last year, uh, really has started reining in technology companies, maybe for slightly different reasons from the Europeans. Um, but there are some overlaps, uh, and so some that I've identified include human control, transparency, safety, accountability, non-discrimination, privacy. All these are perfectly good things. And I ask is, um, are these really necessary? Is it necessary to provide that AI systems should be safe? Of course they should be safe. I mean, if you're releasing a product onto the market, the fact that it's got AI doesn't mean you should be absolved from product liability responsibility. Uh, should you be accountable or should someone be accountable for violations of um, the criminal law or for civil wrongs uh, perpetrated by AI systems? And, and we can talk about military context later. Of course, someone should be. Uh, and so saying that they should be accountable is pretty obvious. Um, Non-discrimination and privacy. Of course, AI systems should uh, respect uh, these things. You shouldn't be able to do through an AI system something that you can't do yourself. And so in terms of applying the law, I don't think it's necessary to come up with new specific rules for the AI systems. The question is how you attribute responsibility for acts conducted by AI systems, in particular, including uh, non-embodied AI systems to traditional legal persons, humans or corporations or potentially states. Uh, there are people who argue that uh, we should be giving personality to the robots. I don't think that's really a, a path we should go down, at least for the, for the foreseeable future. But I do think areas like human control and transparency, maybe there are arguments that uh, you should have some limits on the development of technology that is uncontrollable or uncontainable, or technologies that are impossible to attribute for their actions back to a traditional legal person. Thank you. And... Uh Professor, if we, can, if we can narrow our focus now towards the military and, and uh, the need for uh, AI governance frameworks within within that context, fewer states than uh, than have national uh, AI governance actually have military specific AI uh, governance frameworks. Do you think the military actually needs a unique framework for AI governance? And if so, what are the particular risks that the military and its state will concern itself with? 
Yeah, I mean, sort of broadly consistent with what I was saying earlier, I think the, the first question, the kind of Occam's razor approach is, do you actually need new rules or can we apply existing rules? And the laws of war are kind of remarkable in that they have a built-in technology-neutral, future-proof, if you like, um, approach, which is the Martin's Clause. And so uh, the, the laws of war really were developed with an eye to ensuring that they wouldn't be immediately out of date. Um, now, we have occasionally had uh, new regimes that come in to deal with specific weapons, like chemical weapons, biological weapons, you know, nuclear weapons to some extent. Essentially, the two areas that I think uh, militaries need to be looking at in terms of applying the existing frameworks. Uh, one, should you even develop certain weapons? Uh, and secondly, uh, if you do develop such weapons, who's going to be responsible and how would you make sure that there is responsibility? Um, on the first, uh, the question of whether you should be developing certain weapons, um, Article 36 of the first additional protocol uh, provides that the study, development, acquisition or adoption of new weapons, means or methods of warfare uh, requires states to determine whether their use would violate international law. And even states that haven't signed on to additional protocol one, like the United States, have followed these kinds of principles. So the US in the 1990s investigated and then decided not to develop blinding laser weapons, for example. So some people have argued that um, autonomous weapon systems um, are inherently unlawful uh, because they could never comply with the laws of war because in a battlefield, it's far too complex. Uh, determining who's a civilian, who's a combatant, what's military necessity is too hard for a machine to do. Uh, now, I think that's a pretty terrible argument uh, because if there's one thing that um, AI systems have been improving at over the last decade, it's making those kinds of categorization uh, decisions. Rather than that, I think a better argument for questioning the uh, development of certain weapons is if they depart from meaningful human control. Uh, and that's the term used by the International Committee of the Red Cross, that there should be meaningful human control, in particular in lethal decisions. Not because the humans are going to make a better decision than the robots, uh, although they might, uh, but because these decisions are inherently morally challenging uh, and a human should be forced to grapple with them. Uh, and most importantly, a human should be held accountable for them. So that's the first, I suppose, question. You, you shouldn't be developing weapons that are uh, excluding humans completely from kill decisions or that are uncontainable or uncontrollable. Secondly, if you do deploy some weapons, there's a different set of challenges in terms of things like command responsibility, uh, because even if you have meaningful human control, which human are you going to hold uh, accountable? Uh, so there is a doctrine of command responsibility. Commanders are responsible for uh, much of the conduct of their subordinates. But if an AI system goes wrong and commits a quote-unquote war crime, who's going to be responsible? Is it more like a badly trained soldier uh, who goes, um, runs amok or um, engages in racist or, or sexist crimes or, uh, or um, is undisciplined, loses his or her temper? Uh, or is it more like a malfunctioning missile uh, which blows up? Uh, and uh, the laws of war accept a certain degree of uh, malfunctioning equipment. If a, if a, a missile uh, completely uh, malfunctions and in a manner that's not foreseeable, injures a civilian, uh, that might not be a war crime. Uh, but if you regularly deployed weapons that you knew were going to malfunction, then maybe that could be a war crime. The challenge in terms of implementing this is um, what's the role of the commander in the field? Uh, and this is something that I look at because uh, in theory, um, the commander is meant to 
uh, be in charge of his or her troops. But if they're essentially being given uh, a black box uh, and told to press a button, is it reasonable for that commander to be held responsible if he or she has no real capacity uh, to influence the use of the weapon? So should you then go back upstream and look at whoever uh, authorized the deployment of that weapon or further upstream uh, to look at whoever um, authorized its development and potentially the, the political leadership uh, who authorized that uh, decision in the first place? So all of this to say, I think there are questions that militaries need to be grappled with, grappling with, but I don't think we need to start with um, sort of presuming that we're, we've got a blank slate. Rather, the starting point should be how do these existing pretty well-oiled laws uh, apply to slightly new circumstances. So in terms of the development of, of military AI te technology, uh, it, it seems that defence industry are playing an increasing role in, in this development uh, that, that may uh, be specifically for military use or have a dual-use function that is subsequently adopted by the military. Um, how do you see a military AI governance framework informing the development of, of a tech, a military technology by defence industry? And do you think it plays a role in, in that development? Yeah, I mean, I think the defence industry clearly has an interest in developing new technology. That's, that's their function uh, and uh, their sort of business um, depends on it. The challenge is, yeah, how you uh, ensure that that takes place in a way that doesn't um, expose the government, the military officials, uh, and potentially the country uh, to legal risk. And I think slowly some companies are realizing uh, that there are certain technologies that they shouldn't be uh, developing. At the moment, the AI system is slightly challenging because a lot of AI uh, is inherently dual use or multiple use. Uh, and so it's interesting to draw a little comparison. So is it is certain AI systems more like chemical or biological weapons that are inherently unstable, unlawful? Probably not, uh, because um, most of the underlying technology is pretty innocuous. Uh, the, um, the transportation, the computer vision is not necessarily um, unlawful, uh, but if you start using it to travel out and identify targets and then engage them with lethal force, um, then you cross, cross a threshold. Um, one of the ways in which I've tried to explore an interesting comparison is actually with uh, nuclear energy, uh, because nuclear energy, uh, back when the first atomic bombs were being developed in the context of the Second World War, the scientists who were doing that knew um, that what they had, uh, what they were developing, had the potential for enormous destruction. Of course, that was that was what they were getting funded for, uh, but also for enormous uh, potential benefit. Uh, and there were hopes back then that, in addition to um, advances in, uh, in medicine and in agriculture, you could have had um, electricity too cheap to meter. Um, now, nuclear energy has had a pretty fraught history, uh, but as an example of a technology where we've, for the most part, got the benefits of it, while for the most part minimising some of the harms, it's kind of remarkable that in 2022, uh, since 1945, we've had no nuclear weapons used in anger, touch wood, given what's going on in Ukraine right now, uh, and the number of states with nuclear weapons remains very, very small, given that it's uh, 1940s technology. Uh, I, I suppose the, the question is, okay, well, how should these frameworks inform uh, defense industry uh, decisions? Uh, and one of the challenges, I suppose, is that the desire for governments to develop such weapons is, uh, is going to be uh, both 
uh, internally and externally driven. Internally driven uh, because if you could get into a situation where you reduce the human cost of conflict, that's obviously desirable for governments, uh, but also once potential adversaries develop autonomous systems, uh, it might be uh, extremely difficult to put humans out into a battlefield where they're facing machines that are making ever faster decisions. Now, the danger here, uh, or one of the dangers, is that you'll see something uh, in the AI context similar to what we've seen with drones over the last 20 or so years, uh, because drone technology um, enormously lowered the cost of going into conflict. Uh, so um, President Obama in the United States uh, was responsible for a massive deployment of drones, uh, which enabled the US to continue to protect, project power, uh, but with limited exposure to American uh, personnel. Uh, this meant that you had conflicts where many of the combatants were actually physically absent from the battlefield. Uh, and so there are concerns that if you take the next step and those drones become autonomous, uh, then the traditional uniformed combatants won't just be physically absent from the battlefield, they'll be psychologically and morally absent from the battlefield also. Uh, and so quite apart from compliance with the laws of war, talking about the Yusin Bellow, uh, this will further reduce the, the costs of actually going into conflict in the first place, uh, raising Yusin Bellum uh, concerns. Um, now, does that mean we should be renegotiating stuff, renegotiating the underlying laws? Well, I, I would hope not. Um, again, uh, the starting point should be how do we apply existing laws to these frameworks? partly because I think that's sufficient, partly also uh, because if you started to try to negotiate new laws, uh, then uh, the danger, well, there would be huge challenges to getting consensus. Uh, and I think we're seeing that already in the uh, certain conventional weapons uh, discussions at the UN, where there's kind of an inverse relationship between the willingness of states to talk about a ban on autonomous weapons uh, and their capacity actually to deploy those weapons. So the US and China, I think, are. Uh, uh, are wary of limiting their own battlefield advantage in terms of being able to deploy, deploy some of these weapons. So it's interesting that uh, many of the AI governance frameworks apply broadly broad principles, transparency, safety. Do you see, particularly in the military context, a need for uh, an AI governance framework to uh, refer to specific requirements? Um, for example, you mentioned uh, weapon review requirements under Article 36, or standards of compliance, uh, which um, include meaningful human control or, or uh, nature or, or uh, elements of uh, responsibility and accountability. Um, can you see that the governance frameworks having such requirements, or do you think they will remain broad? So, I mean, the starting point is how do you apply existing laws to these new technologies? Uh, and I think around the world, governments are slowly uh, realizing that they need guidance on, on how to apply. And that's that's where the government fr government's frameworks, I think, can be quite useful, both in terms of how you apply the law and the limits on on the type of technology. So I think even the, the United States has uh, imposed a kind of internal limit on uh, deploying weapons or developing weapons that would essentially be uncontainable so or uncontrollable. So there must be a kind of kill switch, at least you've got to have an off button. The, one of the other challenges, I suppose, is how this affects chain of command type decisions. Uh, and that's one of the difficulties with certain AI systems at the moment is the opaque decision making uh, that is associated with certain forms of machine learning. 
So we're used to having complex technologies. Uh, one of the issues with some of these AI systems uh, is because they're operating on the basis of huge numbers of variables, uh, it can be extremely difficult to understand, if not impossible to understand how a certain decision has been made. Uh, and that's a problem from, from a military perspective because the AI system might then become um, uh, unpredictable. Uh, and most militaries, uh, if, they, if they like one thing, they like predictability. Uh, and so you don't want an AI system that is going to be uh, operating in an erratic way. That said, I, I do think it's important not to be unrealistic. And there is, of course, a difference between, uh, I've been describing autonomous systems. There are plenty of automatic systems uh, that are used and, um, and things like, I mean, landmines make sort of dumb decisions uh, in response to pressure, they, they respond. Heat-seeking missiles are pretty old technology. Close-in weapon systems are pretty old technology. Um, an issue I think we're likely to confront in the near term uh, is a bit like with the drones, where um, increasingly large numbers of decisions are taken outside of the command chain. Um, and in the case of drones in the United States, you have a lot of reliance on contractors. Uh, and so as this technology becomes more complicated, what we've seen with drones is uh, the private contractors are developing, maintaining, uh, in some cases, navigating uh, 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 these uh, uh, drones, uh, but it's a uniform person who has to make uh, lethal decisions uh, in terms of actually engaging a target. If we start going down the path of more and more of these functions being carried out autonomously, so you have a drone that is um, navigating itself, identifying a target, recommending a, a line of attack, uh, and the human in the command chain is limited to merely pressing a button uh, to say, yes, engage, um, then there's a danger that even though theoretically that's a human in the loop, there are a lot of studies that have shown that um, uh, the, the more you repeat those encounters, the less agency the human has. This is why meaningful human control is important, not just human control. Uh, and so I do think that's a problem for the militaries uh, if it means that um, you're essentially delegating a lot of these functions from the men and women who you've trained uh, and who are existing within a hierarchy that is a, a in, a, in a politically accountable context for the military, report, reporting to a, a, civilian, a, a civilian political leader. Uh, if you're outsourcing those to machines, uh, as I've argued elsewhere, it's a little bit like outsourcing these things to mercenaries or private military and security companies. Uh, and if we have reservations about outsourcing some of these inherently governmental functions to for-profit companies, then I think we should apply similar reservations or we should have similar reservations to outsourcing them to AI systems that are developed by for-profit companies. Professor, thank you. This has been a fascinating discussion uh, and we've, we've touched on a, a broad range of issues, but only, only uh, briefly, um, for people that want to continue reading in the area of AI governance and, and uh, uh, its application within the military, context in particular. Is there further reading that you would recommend for our listeners? Oh, thanks, Damien. Um, absolutely. Well, I mean, after you've bought and read my book, bought it for all your friends and <laughs> colleagues and so on, um, I mean, actually, someone who was, I think, recently on your podcast, Hitoshi Nazu, has, has written on this. Uh, he's got a good book with uh, Nihal Bhutta um, on autonomous weapon systems and the law. Uh, a more recent book, um, Kobe Lyons, another Australian, has uh, done a book on new technologies of war, uh, looking in part at nanotechnology, but, but also more broadly how war 
um, uh, has sort of advanced the development of certain technologies and how law has struggled to keep up. Uh, and then, um, yeah, I mean, people should also follow what's going on in the uh, certain conventional weapons discussions at the UN, the International Committee of the Red Cross. Uh, there's, there's a lot of material out there because it's an important question and no one has all the answers yet. I, I couldn't agree more. Th thank you so much, Professor Chesterman. It's been a wonderful discussion. Uh, I appreciate uh, your time. Uh, and I look forward to uh, reading further on this. Both, I, I have bought your book, so uh, <laughs> I, I've already uh, uh, ha have that one, but I look forward to seeing the other publications that you mentioned. Thank you so much. Thanks, Damien. Pleasure to talk. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present.